So a lot of real estate investors don't think about that kind of happy medium where if you are in a position where you're still trying to acquire leverage, maybe you want to pay a little bit in taxes because you're going to save more money in the long run with being able to acquire property at a higher LTV and potentially a lower interest rate. What's up, everybody? My name is Mike Shogren here with my co-host, Emmanuel Pani. We're part of a group of specialized real estate investors you've probably never heard of. We didn't start with deep pockets or wealthy families, and we don't rely on 401ks, mutual funds, or traditional real estate investing. In fact, many of us don't even own the properties that fund our freedom. If you ask the money experts out there, they'd say what we do is impossible, yet it's happening every single day. It's happening through a new niche called short-term rentals. We are Short-Term Rental Nation, and these are our secrets. What's going on, STR Nation? Welcome back to another episode of the Short-Term Rental Secrets Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Shogren, here with my main man and brother from another mother, Mr. Emmanuel Pani. What's up, E? My brother, I get to see you in four days? Five four days, days, dude. That is insane. I am so excited, uh, super grateful, just life is good, uh, so busy, um, launching properties. We are... We have another house in the contract for our friend, Tim. Uh, I went to the inspection the other day. That house is beautiful. Um, so I'm super excited. So it's excited. I'm just, I'm just feeling super grateful, you know? Life is good. How are oh, you yeah. guys? How are your Hamptons properties? Oh, it's good. It's going well. Making some tweaks. Again, it's a new market for me. So like I tell people, yeah. like, you can use tools like Price Labs and stuff like that, but like, you got to pay attention too. like, it does a good job, but like you want to go in there and monitor it and tweak things. And like, 100%. you know, you don't want to mess with it every day. You got to give it a little time to do its thing, but like, it's been live for a couple of weeks. It's done well. We've got a bunch of bookings, but there's certain dates. I'm like, okay, what are the comps pricing it at? What should I price it at? And you know, just monitor that stuff. So it's been good, man. Um, property stuff is going well. Uh, super pumped for the conference. Obviously. Um, if you have not been listening to the show, uh, by the time this airs, we're going to be in Nashville. So yeah, it'll we'll be, be down long. in Nashville June 6th to the 8th for the STR Wealth Conference. So super pumped for that. Uh, I've got Caden's kindergarten graduation in a couple hours. So pretty excited for that. That'll be fun. And yeah. then uh, we got baseball tonight. So it'll be good, man. A busy schedule. I'm excited. Yeah. Is yeah. he coming to Nashville? Are you bringing no, him? no. Kristen and I will be there. He's going to hang out with my in-laws and my parents. So he's more excited to kick us out because he knows he's going to have reign of the house and oh, get sure. whatever the hell he wants with the grandparents. So, sure. yeah. So it's nice to stay with the grandparents. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, uh, I'm excited for today's show. So today we got Alex Brashears on and she's been, she's been in the real estate game for a while. <clears throat> and then she got into some co-hosting and she owns some SDRs, but her big focus is around like private lending and she's got some really cool uh, models around that's focused on short-term rentals. She also has a book that's going to be coming out published by bigger pockets, which is pretty Ooh. sick. So huge shout out to Alex. That's freaking awesome. Um, so real quick on her bio and then we'll bring her in. Uh, she's an owner and co-host of short-term rentals in the Midwest and mid Atlantic. She also does private lending where she lends money to active investors to acquire property, pay for renovations, or even the startup costs associated with short-term rentals. She's offered to lend money to other investors in her network for some of these startup costs. In exchange, she runs the property until the loan is paid back. So private lending actually helped build her co-hosting business. 
And she also uses yield arbitrage and takes equity out of properties that she owns to put that money to work to help others <clears throat> cover the expenses of the property without having to worry about guest stays solely covering the expense of the property. So Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise. Likewise. So take us back to the beginning. Like how did you get involved with real estate? Like at the onset? Mike, many people get involved in real estate. It was actually something my parents did when I was younger. I have very distinct memories of running around to rental properties that my father had and you know, back in the early 80s when, you know, interest rates were in the double digits, you know, he's he was buying real estate and managing it himself. So we were running from house to house, like mowing the lawn and picking up the rent checks and rent cash and all of this. And it was kind of ingrained really early that, hey, you know, real estate is a thing and you should probably make it a thing in your life, too. And then fast forward about 20 years, I had actually joined a local RIA group while I was in college. And my undergraduate work was chemistry. And I just, I got talking to some of the people at the RIA group. And this guy asked, he goes, uh, have you ever thought about being a loan officer? And I'm like, nope, honestly, never crossed my mind. And he explained a little bit about it. And then he said the best thing that every college student wants to hear is you can work your own hours. And I was like, sold, I will do that. And what I ended up doing was, he's a private lender. It turned out he was a private lender and a hard money loan broker. So I actually learned real estate from the other side of the table is what I say. So back before phones were smart and everybody had pagers, I was driving applications out to these borrowers at these properties. I was doing the walkthroughs of the properties. You know, I was basically just, you know, boots on the ground for this private lender. Um, so meanwhile, he's out on the golf course and I'm kind of manning the desk at the office and I would see people coming in to make the monthly mortgage payment when you actually had to like drive checks to people. And, uh, you know, the payments are anywhere between about $700 and $2,700. And obviously just getting to talk to people, I noticed a trend amongst almost all of them. They would get a contractor in there. They would screw up the job. They would run off with half the deposit. They'd get a tenant in there, you know, tenant paid first and last, but hasn't paid anything since but they are always in my office on the first of the month to make their mortgage payment. And where is my boss? My boss is out on the golf course because that's where he's doing the deal. So I'm like, yeah, I'm going to take that option. I don't want to be a landlord and I don't want to be, you know, involved with contractors. So I just kind of started this journey on lending and it's always been something in my life. Uh, as a military spouse, we move a lot. Um, and everywhere we went, we would just bump into that nice little Venn diagram of people involved in real estate and people in the military. And that little circle in between, it was a lot of our borrower pool. So we might have JV'd on a project with someone. We might have done, you know, come in with a second lien to do renovation. And it just kind of took off when COVID became a thing because hard money lenders shut their doors. There was just too much uncertainty in the market for their capital sources. And so everything stopped. So private lenders business boomed during COVID. Wow. Hmm. It sounds so appealing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how to, let me ask you, like, bank, logistically, right? when you're right? getting in the game, right. And you, you want to get into the lending game. Are you raising funds from other investors? Are you pulling out HELOCs or like, how are you, how are you able to fund the deals from that? There side? are, there's so many different ways you can do it. I could talk an hour on just capital sources, but generally uh, most private lenders are going to start out lending their own capital, whether that's capital they have saved, 
a lot of active investors actually do private lending as a side hustle because they'll use their retirement funds because you cannot lend yourself your own retirement funds. So they'll actually put that retirement money to work with another active investor. Uh, they'll pull out a HELOC, do something like a yield arbitrage. You know, they're borrowing at four, lending out at 12. Um, there's another model that a friend of mine does where that's five people that have come together and formed a lending company. And then everybody's got an equity share. Everybody puts money in the pot and then they kind of decide which loans to fund and which ones to not and under what terms. Um, all of those are active investors being involved in choosing the decision, you know, making the decision of which loans to fund. Um, when you start talking about taking on passive investors, uh, it gets a little bit muddy in the waters, but there's another process called fractionalized mortgage. So you and a couple other people or maybe one other person would both be on the lean instrument. Um, usually you're going to want to do that with people you know really well, because if you don't agree on what happens if the loan is paid late, if the loan falls into default. So, and in some states that can actually be considered selling a security, but it's called fractionalized mortgages. And then the last one that a lot of people might be familiar with from the real estate space that invest in syndications is called Regulation D. And so they, most people will know that as 506B and 506C. And that allows you as an active operator to pool capital from people that are purely passive investors. Because if you are trying to raise capital from people that are purely passive, you need some sort of SEC exemption. And in real estate, most of, people, most of the people use that Regulation D exemption from SC, for the SEC. So you could technically do a syndication model, but as, as a private lender. So you're pretty much just saying, hey guys, we're gonna pull, this is how much the fund is gonna be and this is their intention. And then in that case, do you have to already let them know this is the type of lending that we do and for how long? How long are these loans? Are those 12 months, 18 months? I would say the typical private loan is going to be on the shorter side, anywhere from three months to 12 months is pretty typical. There are some lenders out there, especially if they're lending out of the retirement account, they're okay having it placed for two to five years because then they don't have to, it's just mailbox money. They don't have to yeah. worry about keep doing underwriting and churning for a new borrower, a new property and everything. So there are there is a, a small subsect that will want the capital kind of deployed a little bit longer because they don't want the churn. The headache of it. Yeah. Having to like re figure out what to do with it. What are the rates right now? Because we have had a lot of conversation lately about rates and where rates are going. Yes. So private lending is going to be super flexible. So it's literally going to be uh, anything, I would say, for a first lien, anywhere between about maybe 8% going all the way up to maybe 14, 15, 16% for a first lien. And then some private lenders will do second lien. So they'll actually come in as a second mortgage. And those get obviously pricier because the risk is perceived is higher being in a second lien position. Of course. You also have to be mindful of what's called usury laws in the state you are lending in, which is hopefully the same state you live in that makes things way easier. Uh, but there's usury laws that will actually govern kind of the maximum amount, if there is a maximum amount of interest and fees that you can charge anyone for any type of loan in that state. This is super interesting. Yeah. I have to remind myself that we're not a lending podcast with George Mental. Okay, because all of the questions on top of my mind are all lending and, and, loan questions right now um, well it's very because it's, it's a different perspective because like, yeah like alex was saying at the beginning when you learn to see the transaction from both sides of the table you're able to put more deals together and get more creative because you understand both sides perspective 
Yeah. And you're and you're also able to kind of have a way of documenting these things because I know a lot of things real estate investors particularly struggle with is they get involved with real estate to write off all their income so they don't have any taxes. But then when it goes to actually acquiring that leverage, they supply the bank with a ton of documents that say they make no money. And then they wonder why, you know, their LTVs are so low. It's, well, you told the bank you don't make anything. This is what they have to go off of. So a lot of real estate investors don't think about that kind of happy medium where if you are in a position where you're still trying to acquire leverage, maybe you want to pay a little bit in taxes because you're going to save more money in the long run with being able to acquire property at a higher LTV and potentially a lower interest rate. Exactly. And like we talked about with Ryan Bakey last week, these are the conversations that I have with my CPA at least quarterly of like, okay, how much, what is your plan for the next 12 to 24 months? How much do we need to show for income to get the loans that you want to get? And then we can work backwards from there. But if you don't understand this stuff and yeah, nobody likes paying taxes, right? I don't like paying them. Alex, E, nobody likes paying taxes, but it's part of the game, right? And it's, it is what it is. So I want to pivot a little bit and talk about what we were talking offline about your, your model now with short-term rentals and lending on those and how you've kind of managed your downside risk by taking over the operations until you're paid whole. So why don't we walk through that a little bit? Sure. So I would say maybe about the middle of last year, being a lender, I'm kind of one of that, one of those people that's like, let's prepare for the worst and hope for the best. And then reality is going to be somewhere between those two data points. Um, just watching the economic data that I had and access to kind of the lending information that I do, I was like, okay, it's, it's going to get bad. Like we need to do something. We need to start being on the defensive here. And so one of our thought processes was, is how can we get these properties to pay for themselves kind of separate from Airbnb and VRBO? So if, if, if this hyperinflation that I thought was going to happen is start, actually starts happening, leisure travel is the first thing that most households cut. So, and my property specifically are in leisure travel areas because I want to go there and relax on vacation. That's just, that's my business model. That's the properties I bought. So in a, the way to do that, that I chose to safeguard kind of those properties. So they were at least a net zero to our household budget was we did cash out refinances. We pulled some capital out of them. And then I am taking that capital and then redeploying it into private lending. So I'm able for most of the time, able to get the expenses covered for the property without anybody staying there. So they could be totally empty and I can go use them anytime, anytime I want. And it would be basically a net zero to my household. Mm, I love it. I love it. That's beautiful. Like, that's such <laughs> a brilliant way of doing it. And like for those of, that I can really understand and wrap their head around it, it's absolutely brilliant, right? Because that... Kenna, it's it's an other safeguard that you have against any issue with vacancy, any slowdown in travel, anything at all. Yeah, because like I don't I think I've ever heard anybody. I would say the vast majority of I and mean, they are still occupied. Our occupancy's down a little bit from what it was this time last year. But yeah. any of the the money we get for guest stays now, we are actually reinvesting in the property. We are upgrading things, we are painting things, we are adding higher end amenities like, you know, the hot tubs, we're going to be adding a pool to another one, but it's all going to be paid for basically in cash by guest stays because the expenses to the property are already covered doing something else. So how you can almost take it two different directions from the host standpoint or the investor standpoint, that's borrowing from you. 
what does that conversation look like? Like, are these rental arbitrage deals? Are they buying properties? Like what types of transactions are you lending against? We'll start with that first. So private lenders in the way I'm using it, they're going to want to have an asset secured or a lien, you know, against some sort of asset. So rental arbitrage, more than likely, you're not going to get a private lender to work with rental arbitrage because you don't actually own it. And the money would just basically just be going for what they call real property, which is all the stuff inside the property um, that mm -hmm. you can't put a lien on, really. You can't put a lien on somebody's dining room table. Um, so that's going to be property that they are intending upon purchasing, owning. They're going to close on it. Usually the uh, terms, again, can be pretty flexible in, in the way I am doing private lending because it's more of a relationship model. It's me knowing this other investor. We get along. I've seen a couple of deals that they've done. I trust their judgment. Okay, cool. Let's do this loan. Um, it's still going to be, it's not going to be the, you know, the 1990s guru of, you know, I've got this house and got 5,000 at closing. You know, there's still going to be some down payment, you know, requirements. There's still going to be closing costs involved, but you're not having to generally jump through as many hoops as you would on a bank loan. And the reason that's important, at least right now during the frenzy of COVID is a lot of people are getting outbid by all cash offers because they're having to wait, you know, four, five, six weeks for conventional financing to kind of wash through their entire escrow process. I mean, in my market alone right now, an appraisal six weeks out. So you can't even get an appraisal done quickly. So we are in a place where we could do something like an online valuation for the property to get a kind of an idea of what the ARV might be. Uh, get an idea of like what the renovations are that you're going to be doing. Are you adding something? Are you remodeling? You know, what are you doing? And we can kind of come up with our own kind of after repair value if you want to look at it that way. And then we'll lend on some percentage of that after repair value as a first lien holder. As okay. your LTV, like, are you changing your, your LTV now that you're seeing kind of like that market is changing a little bit? Or as a private lender, how are you kind of protecting yourself for what you see could potentially be coming? I am using actually kind of more conservative estimates of value. You know, during yeah, 20, 2020 to 2021, we saw big year over year increases and yeah. a lot of realtors were kind of baking that into, hey, you know, it went up 20% last year, so it's going to go up 20% this up. year. Yeah. Um, and so we are definitely not doing that. We are being very conservative in what we're considering the after repair value. And we are not using anything more than about a 2% appreciation for the next few years just to kind of play on the safe side. Because like I said, for me, lending is about let's prepare for the worst and hope for the best. And then if we end up somewhere in between, we're good. Got it. So you kind of went back to like a how the market would normally appreciate over time versus what the last 12 or 24 months has been. The yes. Last 12, 12, 24 months, like that has been. The future is probably more realistic that two to five percent appreciation year over year. Yes. That way you're you're safer. I like and that. if it does end up going up twenty percent, uh, since my loans tend to be a shorter time frame, they have that extra equity buffer. So when they do go to a bank, yeah, obviously a bank is gonna have an easier time approving a loan for sixty percent loan to value as opposed to eighty percent loan to value if it's a non-owner occupied property or investment property. So that appreciation ends up being kind of the cherry on top for the actual investor, the active investor, because it makes it easier to refinance out of my private money and then get into something that's a lower interest rate for longer terms. So for your typical loan on something like that, 
how long is your loan term? And then from your, your exit out of that is based on their ability to refinance you out essentially. Uh, so it just really depends on the property. So I would say some of my loans have been as short as three or four months. They literally just kind of, they just needed some sort of bridge debt until, you know, a flip sold and they had cash or whatever the situation would be, or it was a very minor fix and flip, like literally just need to be new paint, new flooring. And it was thrown back on the market on MLS. Uh, the kind of higher end side would be 12 months. So they have 12 months to figure out whatever they're going to do with this business model whether that's do a big gut rehab and then turn around and sell it to a retail buyer, or if they're doing a major rehab um, and then they're planning to basically kind of burr it. So they'll get refinanced out into either DSCR loan or something commercial product or conventional lending with Fannie Freddie. Uh, but basically I am paid back as a lender at the end of the gig, whether they sell it, whether they refinance it, you know, and they could even refinance it with another private lender and just say, look, I want out of the deal let's go find another private lender for you. And then you can actually refinance into another loan with another private lender because just maybe I need the capital back at that end of that 12 months and I can't extend for another six for some reason. Got so it. how does it work for the STRs where you were talking about like managing those properties while your funds are deployed? Tell me a little bit about that. So those in those situations, those are investors that, again, it's a very relationship-based model I have a relationship with these investors because I've done something with them in the past. I've done something real estate related transaction wise with them in the past. They have qualified for conventional financing on the property. Uh, the three, three of them were done with the, you know, second home loan, you know, 10% down Fannie debt kind of loan. And then I would come in with basically an unsecured loan to their LLC. So it's from my LLC to their LLC. So it's a business purpose loan for the amount of whatever we thought would be reasonable for furnitures, decor, technology to get the property up and running. But, you know, we set aside a loan agreement, you know, promissory note, repayment terms. And one of those repayment terms was that I had to maintain management of the property for as long as that loan was outstanding, because then I would know how well it's run, what it's doing, what the numbers actually are. And then once the loan was paid back, however that was paid back, whether it was through guest stays, you know, they had another pro project that closed and they just lumped some, here you go, whatever that looked like, I was going to be the manager of that property until the loan was paid back. Are Got you paying a co-host fee on top of it or just like a certain cut every month for your loan payback? Uh, it's going to, it's, I leave it kind of open. I do get a co-hosting fee, but there's also a minimum loan payment. So okay. basically it's kind of incentivizes them to pay extra on the loan because then they don't necessarily have to keep me in as management, you know, losing that 20% or 25% every month because a lot of them actually wanted to go into this as kind of like their first short-term rental experience. And then I would kind of turn around and then go from lender to teacher and then teach them how to self-manage. And because I already had the systems up and running for their property. So it was really easy to make that handoff to them. Mm. Mm. You're you're very nice. I would never give that back. <laughs> There's no way. Uh, if you get like if this is the way you get me in the door, I'm not I'm not getting out of there. Or if I'm getting out, I'm taking everything that I built with me. Um, but that's that's interesting though. So I love the fact that like so this in in a sense is your other kind of loans that you would do, right? So it's not you don't have any security on it, but you found your way to put security on it in a sense because it's like I know I'll run it. So I know what I'm going to do 
is the goal for you then to keep expanding the lending business or is the goal to expand the management business or what does the future look like for you like where are you where are you going i am definitely more on the lending side of things when i look at just now uh, because my spouse lives overseas i have to be very cognizant of what takes up my time on a daily basis weekly basis on a monthly basis from mm -hmm. a dollar producing activity standpoint i make far more on the lending side and I don't get phone calls at 11 o'clock at night. Somebody can't remember their four digit phone number to get in their door. Um, so it's a lot less what I call mental brain damage for doing just the lending portion versus doing the co-hosting side. It's just not that it's a bad model, but it doesn't fit my strengths and it usually doesn't fit my goal. So it was never really a goal to build this huge co-hosting empire that wasn't my goal. I was just working with other investors and they happened to get into short-term rentals. And I'm like, okay, I will happily help you, but here's how I need to be, basically, like you said, here's how I need to secure my interest in this particular transaction is doing this. Yeah, I mean, that's super cool. Alex, we've been unique story. Like, two years now. Yeah. Something like that. So yeah. like, I remember when you got started, it was like, you weren't really loving the co-hosting. You kind of oh, had, no. <laughs> had some issues with some investors, some guests, all that stuff but I love how you bridged it. Cause like your bread and butter has always been the lending, but now it just opened up another door for you to lend in a different asset class and manage your downside risk because you know how to run properties effectively now. So I love it. It's, yeah. it's freaking awesome. No. And honestly, like it was a light bulb moment for me because I'm getting to the point where, where I have people asking us for lending short-term lending and my, resistance has been that it's people wanting short-term lending for short-term rentals and i'm like who's managing them for you and yeah. i never even even in the back of my mind had the idea of like while i lend it i'll manage it for you so i know that i can guarantee myself that at least it's gonna be done well absolutely and you can choose kind of which deals to get involved with so if they come to you and say, you know, they need $50,000 for a one, one cabin out in the middle of nowhere. And you see that, you know, there's no real attraction to that. You know, the, your, their guest avatar isn't going to stay in a one, one. I can just be like, no, I'm going to pass on this opportunity and here's why. And you might want to rethink your strategy. And mm -hmm. when you're adding value to potential borrowers that way, you kind of get this little like IOU. And they're like, you know what? Alex told me about this and we talked about changing my avatar. So the next time they go to buy something, guess who they're coming back to to say, hey, I know this one one in the mountains didn't work, but now I have a condo at the beach. What do you think about this condo at the beach? Because you're building that really organic relationship and getting to know what their goals are, what your goals are, what your criteria is. And then they'll go out and find something that meets that criteria. And they're like, hey, we had a conversation about this. Now I got one. Yeah. What, what's right. funny to me? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, e, and then I'll ask my no, question. No, going on that topic, and, and it's something that I think you realize over time, is that the say yes that a lot of salespeople have in specific industries like real estate, it doesn't end up working to your advantage. Whereas what I found over time is that I feel that my clients perceive more value from me the more honest I've been able to be with them. Whereas before I was kind of like a yes person a lot. Now I'm like, no, this is horrible. Like I would never buy this. And it's so kind of different from what they used to that people would appreciate it. And even if they're working with another agent or another person, another lender, I've had people come back to me after the fact being like, 
hey, we bought this thing that you said wasn't good. And they're now long-term clients of mine that came exactly from what you were talking about. The fact that you're like, I don't need this one. And two, you shouldn't buy this anyways because it's not right. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. will learn. I always tell people you will learn far more from the answer of no than you ever will from the answer of yes. Yeah. You just have to be open to it and not take it personal. Right. Yep. So what I was going to ask Alex is if, if somebody in the community is out there and they're looking for a private lender, like where do they find them and what does that conversation look like? So uh, I started a Facebook group for this very reason, because we take the private part of private lender very seriously. We're like the hide and seek champion to the world because I was a private lender that couldn't find other private lenders. So I created a Facebook group that was education-based, networking-based. And over the last two years, it went from zero to 7,000 people. And it's just, it's just wow. kind of exploded and become a thing. And now we do like bi-weekly kind of networking events together. The first thing I will tell people is if you are new to real estate or somewhat new to real estate, chances are your first private lender is already going to be in your network. And chances are they are not going to know they are a private lender. They might not have that label attached to them right now. So for example, one of the reasons we wrote the book um, that's coming out with Bigger Pockets, not so much to teach people about private lending, because that is very important, but it can also be a tool for active investors. So if the active investors read this book, they can then go, hey, you know, Cousin, I know you have $100,000 in your IRA. Here's how I can protect it and get in, get you invested in real estate. What do you say about partnering on this deal? And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get title insurance. I'm going to get hazard insurance. I'm going to get flood insurance. Here's all the things that I'm going to do. And oh, by the way, here's the book that shows you all the things that I'm going to do to secure your money. So it becomes a tool for active investors to kind of create their own pool of private lenders mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to go out there and find them you will bump into them but very rarely someone that's going to be a private lender like i do it we are not going to come forward at a RIA event and say hey we're private lenders because chances are we just either we already have too much deal flow for the capital we have to deploy or we just don't want to get mobbed like I, mm -hmm. as soon as someone finds it out at the very beginning like i got pitched an elephant farm in texas and i'm like Island on fix and flips in Hampton Roads, Virginia. This is not something I'm going to be involved in. An um, elephant so, farm? An el yeah, I, trust me. I was just like, wait, what? <laughs> that, I have so many questions. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I, I, I did didn't even too. think there would be, there would be like an elephant. <laughs> like, uh, anyways, what's so, the name of the Facebook group? Um, it's called Lend to Live Private Lending Lessons. And so, again, everything in it is 100% free. We have tons of educational stuff on there. We have the bi weekly. Um, you know, meetups where people can just come and talk to private lenders, whether you're an active investor looking to figure out how to attract private money to your deals. Uh, maybe you're a budding private lender. You're not sure where to get started. Maybe you're a lender that's kind of done a few deals, but you want to learn how to scale. Those are the types of conversations we have at those, what we call office hours. And I would imagine, right. I've, I've raised some money in the past and I had an existing relationship with those people in some capacity. Right. Whether I've worked on deals with them, whether I knew them professionally, whatever, I kind of, I don't want to say I chuckle, but like it sounds mean when I say it, but I kind of chuckle because like if I look at my inbox on LinkedIn, some guy just hit me up yesterday and was like, Hey, I have a $1.6 million hotel that we're raising money for. Do you want in? I'm like, dude, I don't know you. I don't know this deal. Like, no. Like, and it's not to be mean, but like think logically. Like if somebody just came to you and was like, Hey, I need $1.6 million for a deal. You'd be like, okay. 
You know what I mean? Like there's a, there's an art to it. And real estate is a relationship business. I don't care if it's short-term rentals, long-term rentals, lending, flipping, like you need to build relationships. Like, like Alex is doing, she built a community to like help people. So like, how can you add value? How can you connect with people? She used to push papers for this guy on the golf course. Right. So she learned it that way. Like you either got to pay for your education or you got to put in some dirt work to, to learn it so that you understand what's going on and then just build some genuine relationships. Then it's just like Gary V jab, 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 right hook, like add value, add value, add value, then have an ask. Right. So just keep that in the back of your mind. Don't just start like spamming your entire LinkedIn network for money. Like maybe you'll get a deal, but that's not the approach that I would take. It's, it's also, I will say active investors. The other thing they do is they start off with like, Hey, what's your rate? What's your interest rate? Like they zero in on that annualized rate. And it's like, no, like the type of private lending I do, there is no like formal term sheet. I just need to get to know you as a person, see how much risk I think you pose to the capital. And then we'll talk about things. And there's so many other ways that I can add value to an investor as a lender other than just lowering your interest rate. So for example, for when I lend in the second lien position for fix and flips in my own market, I give the active investors two options. I was like, it can be 10% flat for four months and you make monthly payments, or it could be 12% flat for four months and you can just roll all that interest in the payoff because some retail buyer is basically going to end up paying their interest for them. And anybody who's ever done a fix and flip, you know, you are hemorrhaging money for the first three or four months you have that thing. So any opportunity they can say, yeah, I don't, I don't want to make those monthly payments they'll happily pay an extra 2% on a relatively small loan to not do that. And so, but if you just come at me and go, what's your rate? There's like so many other things that we can kind of move this lever and move that lever to make it a win-win situation. And if you're zeroed in on just that one number, like do the math. If you have a $100,000 loan over the course of a year, one or two percentage points is $1,000 or $2,000 over the course of a year. How much, how many more deals could you possibly do if you had a good working relationship with a private lender? I guarantee you, you're going to make more money than one or $2,000 it's going to cost you to have that little bit of extra interest rate, but you have an easier relationship and easier access to capital. 100%. What if we had somebody that is now in the process of maybe applying for their first loan or applying for their first private lender loan, right? And they wanted to come and meet you impress you for the first time right what would you say to them like this is what you can put in a offer set of documents that would impress me this is what i'd look for as a private lender first i would just start to get to know them as a person i would much rather start a conversation with an active investor going what types of properties or projects do you lend on and i can tell them i lend on fix and flips in hampton roads virginia And then go, oh, well, I'm slightly outside Hampton Roads. Would you consider Richmond, which is about an hour north of me? Okay, yeah, that's not too bad. You know, I might be able to flex on that a little. Tell me more about the project as opposed to like, let's go in and try to be the bargain basement shopper and get like the fewest origination points, the fewest interest rate, the fewest fees. It's like, no, like, let's get to know you. What other projects have you done? Is this the first property you're going to have up in Richmond? Do you normally invest in Hampton Roads? And that's how you got my contact information. Like, We just got to spend a little bit of time getting to know each other. And I am going to Facebook stalk the crap out of you. And I'm going to Google you before we even meet. Like, because I'm one of those people, there's kind of a debate in lending. Do you bet on the jockey or do you bet on the horse? I bet on the jockey. I like the person. 
There are other lenders where it's kind of flipped around and they're very much about the property, you know, going back to about Pareto's principles. You know, I'm about 80% person, 20% property. As long as the property numbers relatively check out, I'm on board. But the person is very important to me because if I have a person that's got maybe a very thin deal, but I know they're a great operator, they're a very genuine, authentic person, and they're going to do everything in their power to get me made whole, I will do business with that, a thin deal over someone that I don't trust, does not have any ethics, I don't think has any interest in anything other than making themselves better. And even if you handed them a best deal on the planet on a silver platter, they could probably still screw it up. That's not going to be my borrower. So for me, it's going back to that relationship business aspect. It's going to be someone that I'm going to want to do business with. You do business with people you know, like, and trust. So if you don't start off the conversation with those three things, you're not going to get very far with a private lender like myself. I love that. I have uh, one of my mentors taught me that he has an investment matrix that he looks at every deal. And the first piece of that matrix is always people. Because it's like, it's like people, the product or the deal. And then it's like the systems and the oh, procedures and everything else. It's like system and procedures I can always fix. So I'm not too worried about that. The deal itself, it can be what you said, right? It's either good or bad. But it's like if the core foundational piece of the whole pyramid is going to be the people. So if the people are bad, it doesn't matter if the system and procedures are great. That carries no weight at all. If the deal is great, but the people are bad, is it worth it? Yeah. And most I mean, of the time, what he always told me is like, it's, it's never going to be worth it because then a great product and system and procedures can be made bad by a bad operator. Which is I mean, it's, it's really funny because like the everybody feels like everybody they know is involved in real estate and real estate is actually a really small community. And especially for me being in, in a military affiliated and in real estate, our community is even smaller. Mm -hmm. So if you lose that reputation, if you burn one lender, you burn one partner, you burn one deal and don't take any accountability for it. I call it the Cajun underground being from Louisiana, the Cajun underground will figure that out real quick. Because one of the first things I will ask when I'm seriously considering funding a deal is I want the contact information for three people you have done business with. And I'm going to talk to those people and ask them how the deal went and what happened and what went wrong and see kind of their language on accountability. But then I take it a step further and I ask those professional references for, hey, do you know anybody else my borrower has done business with? I might want to talk to them because obviously if you ask somebody for professional references, they're going to tell you people that are going to give you glowing recommendations, but that second tier, they might not be thinking about and be like, Oh, I think he did a, I think he did a, a flip with Bob like two years ago. Here's Bob's information. And that second ring of people is where you really get the stories. Let me tell you, you get some stories in that second ring of people. So it's very important that you keep your reputation in check. Like it needs to be, Kind of, you don't want to fall into the trap of like over promising and under deliver. You want it the other way around. So good. So I want to hear a little bit more about the book. We touched on it, but this is big, exciting news. So tell me a little bit more about the book and when it's coming out and what can people expect from it? So the book, uh, it came from a place of there is no private lending book on the market that has any sort of actionable detailed steps on what to do. And honestly, it's very funny. I don't know if I manifested it, but like for a year, I would poke fun at bigger pockets because Brandon Turner, the only way private lending was mentioned in bigger pockets 
was like Brandon Turner going, go find a private lender to fund your deals. And that left that whole other side of the table like, okay, great. But, you know, how do we do that? We don't know how to do that. And I was meeting with people one-on-one and just seeing, I don't want to say clueless, but just they had no idea because it's just not out there on how you can do this, how you can secure yourself, the safeguards you want in place. And I just happened to meet another female author. Oh, she's my co-author, but meet another female private lender who had that kind of same spirit, that same foundation was the same, that we were very adamant about educating people and getting people involved this way. Because a lot of people they get involved in real estate investing because they they say they want financial freedom. And that might be true. But fundamentally, deep down, if you keep asking yourself, why? Why do I want financial freedom? What does that look like? Why do I want that? Usually what they want is time freedom or geographical freedom or both. And they'll get all spurred up. And I want to get a thousand doors of multifamily units in a year. But they don't realize what kind of time commitment being a GP on a thousand doors really entails. So all you're doing is working yourself into another business and another job. And I did not want to do that. Um, so that's why I pursued private lending, because my kind of the, the way I look at the world now is through, like I said, mental brain damage. And then my, what is my time commitment on this project going to be? And is it worth my time to do? And sometimes it's yes. And sometimes it's no. A lot of times it's no now because I just, I have other ways of bringing in income to my household that don't require that major time commitment. 100%, 100%. What's the name of it and when does it come out? So Bigger Pockets gave it a 15 word title. I didn't, I'm gonna free, I'm gonna forewarn you. I did not name it. This is not the name we picked, but the name is Lend to Live, Earn Hassle-Free Passive Income in Real Estate with private money lending. <laughs> I know it's a mouthful. Eventually you'll remember it all. <laughs> right. I know, I know you'll get there. It just yeah, starts it just starts with lend to live. So I was just like, I'm good there. It's called lend to live. <laughs> and it will be available through bigger pockets uh, on the 28th of July. So it'll be coming out very shortly. They're doing an audio book version. There's going to be an ebook version and then obviously a, a hardcover version. And like I said, it's geared towards, we call it both sides of the aisle. It's geared towards active investors that want to learn how to attract private capital by being kind of their education source in their little you know, pot of network. And then it's also designed to help people who are wanting to either do private lending or learn more about private lending. It will help in both of those cases. So it's basically, it's not a, yes, it's a book about private lending, but it's also a tool for active investors. Love it. I love it. Well, Alex, before we get in the last question, I want to thank you for coming on here and sharing all this all this wisdom with us. We haven't talked about private lending. I mean, we've mentioned it here and there, but this yeah. was fantastic. I got a bunch yeah, of notes. Um, this was really good. So thank you for that. And so the last question we'd like to ask all of our guests is, what is your number one secret to success with short-term rentals? It's going to absolutely be choose the property and or owner well if you're doing co-hosting. Because if you're taking on a property that the owner just wants to buy the cheapest version of everything and it looks like a college kid's dorm room, you're going to attract college kids in your properties and it's going to be a pain in the neck. So I would 100% say, I know in the beginning you get very thirsty and you're like, I just need that first deal. I just need to get my feet wet. And that could potentially set the tone of your short-term rental experience very, very quickly for a, in a negative capacity. So, you know, really... Go from a place of abundance and say, I'm going to attract the right people with the right types of properties, and I'm not going to accept anything that isn't that particular paradigm. 
Love it. Well said. Well said. Alex, thank you again so much for being on here. Really appreciate you coming on. Uh, We'll make sure to get all the, all the good stuff in the show notes here and looking forward to the book. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. pleasure. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Hey, STR Nation. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. And in the comments, let us know what topics you want us to cover on upcoming episodes. And we'll make sure to get that in the books for you. And if you really want to learn how to launch, automate, and scale your short-term rental business, if you want to go deeper, then check out our free masterclass at strsecrets.com.